This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Podcast. I'm Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today my guest is a professor of mathematics from Temple University and the author of best-selling books such as Innumeracy, Mathematical Illiteracy and Its Consequences, and A Mathematician Reads the Newspaper, as well as other books. We will be discussing certain aspects of his career and how he brings a mathematical mindset to bear on important facets of modern life. And we will also spend some time talking about his most recent book, which is his unique kind of version of an autobiography, and that's entitled A Numerate Life, available from Prometheus Books. John Allen Paulos, thank you so much for being here. It's good to be with you, Sam. So I mentioned your autobiography, A Numerate Life, and I actually wanted to start by reading a short little excerpt from that book because you have a very quick, concise rundown of your life. You kind of pack your whole life into one sentence. <laughs> um, so this is from the introduction. I think it'll give us a little bit of background on yourself, and then we can talk about some parts of it. You wrote, quote, I was born in 1945, grew up in Chicago and Milwaukee, graduated from the University of Wisconsin, went into the Peace Corps to avoid the draft. Returned to Madison, where I met my beauteous wife, Sheila, and received my Ph.D. in mathematics. Moved to Philadelphia to teach at Temple University. Had two wondrous children, who have recently begotten three grandchildren. Wrote some books on mathematics, a couple of which were bestsellers. And gradually, as I became less intelligent, became more a writer than a mathematician. So that's quite the summary there, John. (laughs) Okay. Well, one one correction. It's four grandchildren now, not three. Oh, that's a nice little update then. That's happy news. (laughs) All right. Um, And I want to go to one particular little clause in that biography, and that's your Ph.D. in mathematics. So when was it that you decided to go ahead towards a Ph.D., and then why was it that you decided to do that? Well, as an undergraduate, I majored in a variety of areas. I majored for a while in English and physics, philosophy, even uh, classics, uh, but kept returning to math and to lesser extent philosophy. And uh, Bertrand Russell had been... uh, a childhood idol of mine. Hmm. He was probably a factor in my going into mathematical mathematics in, in general, mathematical logic in particular. Ended up in uh, where I am, in part because of those uh, early decisions. Hmm. And one thing I do here on the podcast is I always like to just get on the record the topic of people's dissertations so that listeners sort of have this landscape of what people were doing when they were at the graduate student level. And I know yours is in mathematical logic and things, but maybe in a nutshell, you can mention what the focus of your dissertation was and also who you worked with there when you were in grad school. Sure. I studied uh, model theory in general and the model theory of non-standard logics, logics with uh, quantifiers that say there exists uncountably many or uh, that allow infinite sentences and various other variants on uh, first-order logic, including Lindstrom's theorem, which characterizes first-order logic as the largest logic, which uh, satisfies uh, countable compactness and downward Lohenheim scolum. So, uh, as I said, I, I gravitated t- towards logic because it was close to philosophy. It was kind of a, a general sort of uh, overview of mathematics in a sense. And uh, I stayed in logic for a while, and then in recent years, uh, switched over more to probability and statistics. And uh, as uh, that uh, sentence you read indicated, uh, popular writing uh, in more recent years. Mm-hmm. I, I work with uh, John Barway's 
Uh, unfortunately, the late John Barwise and Jerry Kiesler at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And you mentioned writing uh, kind of for popular press. Uh, you write online and have written, you know, these books that we're going to be talking about. So I wanted to go back to that moment when you decided to start writing books for the public, for a public audience and bringing some mathematical points of view and sharing it with a broader audience. Um, what was it that led you to make that turn? And I think you kind of started with some mathematics and humor, which is kind of a fun topic. But what was that like to decide to make that move? And also, how did you go about actually getting kind of a book deal and getting published with your first book. The first book, as you uh, indicated, was entitled Mathematics and Humor. It kind of jived with my interest in mathematics. I mean, there, there are uh, mathematical aspects to humor. I mean, both of them you involve self-reference often, unusual juxtapositions and permutations and logical paradoxes, incongruities, uh, literal interpretations of things. Uh, even uh, reductio ad absurdum, although in humor, the emphasis is on the absurdum and in mathematics on the reductio part. Mm-hmm. But uh, there, I was just struck. I've always been struck by the fact that uh, despite their superficially very dissimilar uh, uh, realm of uh, in the, our conceptual landscape, uh, nevertheless, I mean, ingenuity, cleverness are hallmarks of both, uh, both math and humor, a long-windedness. Uh, is antithetical to pure mathematics, as it usually is to good humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll cut short this, uh, <laughs> this little disposition. <laughs> by Speaking not of being self-referential. But uh, one other aspect is that, uh, you know, the, there's a mathematical content to, to many uh, jokes and puzzles and so on, which also uh, struck me. I mean, uh, uh, a joke I tell in math and humor is... Uh, story of a young man who signs up for online date, an online dating service and he stipulates he wants a potential spouse who really likes water sports and is very outgoing, gregarious, comfortable in formal wear, a little shorter than average, and the service recommends a penguin. It's not a hilarious joke, but uh, but it, it does illustrate that, I mean, if you take the young man's requirements for the axioms, and then the natural interpretation is a young woman who satisfies those conditions. But uh, the penguin it provides the axioms with a, a different and unexpected model. Mm-hmm. And in fact, non-Euclidean geometry can be considered as a kind of joke in that sense. Uh, it's a non-standard model of Euclid's axioms minus the parallel postulate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's perhaps many people would consider it a stretch, but... Uh, that's one kind of humor where you have a, a, a bunch of conditions and the punchline is uh, a non-standard model of those conditions. But uh, there are a lot of such uh, overlap between uh, math and humor. And uh, I mean, even vector addition. I mean, there, one thing I do when I'm teaching, uh, I say, OK, imagine uh, that there's a tribe of bear hunters that uh, became uh, extinct shortly after they mastered vector analysis. And the reason for that is when before when they saw a bear to the northwest, they just shoot it with their bow and arrow. But now when they see a bear to the northwest, they shoot an arrow to the north and one to the west and the bear gets away. So, <laughs> it's, again, corny joke, but uh, almost any bit of mathematics can be uh, humorized if I can point a verb. And I, as you might suspect, like to do that. Yeah, and it's fun, too, because... 
in the mathematical communities, we do have some jokes that are kind of funny only if you know the mathematics. But then what you do in that book is you also kind of break down structures and patterns of just regular humor from stand-up comics and, and things like that. I am curious, though, like with that book, did you have to shop that around and you had the idea and you wanted to write that book or you had written it and were shopping it around? Or was there actually a publisher that kind of was looking for something along those lines? I wrote it first and I, I submitted it to a few places and... Uh... University of Chicago seemed very interested in it, and there was a university press, so uh, I uh, I went with them. It was interesting. This was early in my career. I did, did not yet have uh, tenure, hmm. so I uh, I didn't make uh, you know much of a noise about it since I thought it would be held against me since mm-hmm. to write something that was uh, popular, you know, that was read by more than nine people. It's always dangerous sometimes. <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> You know, I think that that's no longer a concern. Mm-hmm. I want to move into the your kind of middle phase of writing where you had some bestsellers that really started to take off and with larger publishers. In my view of your work, it seems like a lot of your books have a theme of intersecting mathematics and then also sometimes statistics probability with other topics. So mathematics and humor, for example. Uh, there's also mathematics and news or journalism that you did in The Mathematician Reads the Newspaper. Um, you intersected mathematics and religion in the book Irreligion, which is one of the ones that I uh, really resonated with when I was starting to read your work. Um, you did mathematics and the stock market, and then recently mathematics and biographies. So I just wanted to ask you, like, is this how you kind of approach things as this intersection between mathematics and other topics? And is that how you get your inspiration? Uh, to a large extent, yes. I, I've always liked the idea of uh, rubbing together incongruous subjects and see what comes out of it. Uh, it seems to be a kind of necessary, it's not sufficient, but a necessary condition for generating creative ideas. And uh, sometimes this results in uh, eye rolls from people who are sometimes even a bit of vituperation from people who don't like their subjects uh, viewed by someone outside the field. But um, in any case, I, I think you know, mathematics is a most productive way of looking at the world. You know, I've always felt constrained and felt, feel that other people are constrained by a very myopic uh, notion of what mathematics is. As I've written elsewhere, mathematics is no more computation than literature is typing. I mean, nobody says, oh, you're a great typist. You might as well write a novel or you, you're a bad, horrible typist. Forget your novel. And yet uh, I think Mathematics is sort of in the same boat. I also always liked uh, a quote by Wittgenstein uh, in which he says uh, he, look, he looked forward to the day when philosophy ceased to exist as a subject, but all other subjects were viewed philosophically. Hmm. I, I don't want mathematics to disappear, but I think mathematics is not, not just a, a noun. I think it, it helps to think of it kind of as an adverb. Look at almost anything else uh, mathematically. As I say, that that's what I've uh, tried to do in at least some of my books, and not just probably statistics, but logic and uh, chaos theory and you know, other areas of mathematics that uh, have resonance in the outside world. Yeah, and so you mentioned mathematics is a valuable way of looking at other areas, um, but you also, in A Numerate Life, you talk about how sometimes people put an exaggerated trust in math and science. And so I was wondering kind of where that line is. Like, uh, do you think mathematics is a good perspective to bring to bear on anything? Or do you think there are some domains where it's maybe not appropriate or useful to intersect it with mathematics? Oh, there are certainly some domains where it's less useful. Yeah, so in some areas, uh, journalism 
perhaps uh, being one of them, or public policy, uh, mathematics uh, has a lot to contribute. I think it has much less to contribute in, uh, I don't know, um, abstract art, for example, although there are, there are programs that uh, their, their creators claim have fooled people. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, but math, uh, numbers in particular, aren't, aren't just for decoration. Uh, they, they convey information, and people forget that. But uh, yeah, yeah, there are there are differences. I mean, you also talk about the distinction between stories and statistics. They suffer, not suffer, but they they possess different logics. Mathematical logic is extensional. Uh, a set is determined by its members, and uh, equal equals can be substituted for equals without uh, changing the truth value of whatever it is you're talking about. But that's not true in stories. I mean, in mathematics, you, wherever there's a three, you can substitute it for the largest integer less than pi, or the square root of nine, or the cube root of 27, everything still goes through. Mm-hmm. In stories, that's not the case. It'd be kind of silly if somebody said, ah, the happiest day of my life was Millard Fillmore's 174th birthday, even if that happened to be the woman's wedding day. Mm-hmm. Storytelling is not, uh, it's not extensional. Stories are not extensional. There are lots of different uh, aspects to their logic, some different mindsets. Uh, storytellers are much more likely to uh, accept false positives and uh, scientists false negatives. And uh, when you tell a story, what do you do? You, want, you suspend disbelief, whereas you uh, do science or, or mathematics, uh, you, you should, and uh, practitioners do suspend belief. Because they don't want to be fooled, they don't want to be bamboozled. There, there is a, an interesting interplay between uh, story statistics, or to vary the uh, the alliteration between numbers and narratives. Yeah, I, I'm enjoying your biography, Enumerate Life, where you bring up some of these ideas about storytelling and about biography and about why do we trust biographies so much? Um, and it's maybe because we are going into the suspension of disbelief when actually maybe we should be a little bit suspicious of people's memories and things like that. You also bring a mathematical perspective to biographies in the sense of having a lot of points of data, all of these events of your life and how you remember them and everything. But then to write a biography, you're sort of just fitting, you know, a line of best fit or fitting some sort of curve through the important points. But, you know, then you kind of ignore the data that doesn't fit that curve and you sort of follow the narrative curve through. Um, so that's kind of fun for me to think about, or just your approach to biographies. So let's um, take some time to talk about your biography, Enumerate Life. I want to actually talk about uh, some of the math teachers that make appearances in the book. Um, you've had some positive experiences with math teachers, but also some negative experiences when you were a student. I was wondering if you could just share some of those memories about you as a math student. Yeah, one I, I begin the book with is uh, occurred when I was about 10 years old. Uh, the class was discussing sports records, and the teacher was this kind of martinet. He had a big bulbous red nose and uh, hulking uh, presence and uh, kind of intimidating in a way. Anyway, we were talking about sports, and I mentioned that uh, there was a pitcher, for a relief pitcher for the Milwaukee Braves, who had an earned run average of 135. Hmm. And uh, I didn't explain it to him, but I said that, uh, you know, he, the pitcher had allowed five runs to score and had only retired one batter before he uh, was pulled. Mm-hmm. So uh, five divided by 120 divided by 127th is 135. 
Anyway, he got almost angry, you know, visibly angry and said, sit down, sit down. You can't have a hut. I don't know, an average higher than 27. Uh, that's just impossible. And, you know, I kind of sat down uh, the way he said it so emphatically and with his big bulbous nose. Anyway, uh, later in the year, uh, the, the Milwaukee Journal published the final statistics regarding every player. And this player had been sent down to the minors mm-hmm. and never returned. And it said, see, uh, if, you know, everything. And it said, look, here's a guy, and he's got an earned money average of 135. <laughs> and I brought it up in class with the newspaper, and he told me, sit down, sit down. And, uh, and But the, the, the realization that, that I had was that I was little, and my voice quavered, and I had a kind of red face, and he was this uh, big kind of hulking guy. But I was right that he was wrong, and I knew it, he knew it. Mm. And it just hit me that the little logic and a little math, uh, you don't have to be big to vanquish uh, bullies. Mm. And so, I mean, it, it's a, a funny lesson to, uh, to take. I mean, people always talk about very supportive teachers, which are, should be applauded, of course. But there is no royal road to mathematical mathematics education. And in a way, you know, I don't want to overstate his effect, but it kind of set me on my path towards mathematics and, and its uh, implications for, for the world, mm-hmm. uh, for the external world, public world. And uh, mm-hmm. so it's hard to be really uh, doctrinaire about uh, the, the math wars. There's no, as I said, no royal road to mathematical pedagogy. Uh, different things work for different kinds of people. Uh, everything from rote learning, which in general I don't like, to um, more free reeling applications, which in general I do favor. But uh, depends on on the person, on the teacher, on the situation. Mm-hmm. I want to share one quote from the book where you're talking about this teacher as part of the story, and you say his idea of good education apparently was to make sure everyone remained seated. <laughs> <laughs> that that's a good line, uh, and I think I've I've seen some of those teachers in my experience as well. Yeah, I'm sure most uh, people who take mathematics or even go on. I mean, remember them kind of uh, vividly. I mean, they're an illustration of what's wrong, and uh, sometimes that's almost as effective as, as what's right. Mm-hmm. I want to also pick up uh, this thread about math education and go back to the metaphor that you mentioned earlier about typing versus writing. And in mathematics, a lot of times it can just be computation or procedural execution instead of doing the rich thinking of mathematics and um, you know generating ideas and critiquing those ideas, building arguments. And then also I want to kind of connect this to how you're taking mathematics and you see it as a valuable way to look at the world, make sense of the world, critique the world, that sort of thing. So I want to just see if you can say a little bit more about the relationship between your work and the work of mathematics educators in schools. So if there are math education scholars and also teachers who are trying to bring in rich problem solving, bring in sense making with their students instead of just typing, instead of just computation, do you feel that that connects with or resonates with what you're trying to do with your books about bringing mathematical thinking and applying it to things in the world? Yes, I I do think so. I mean, I think there should be some involvement with the material, some uh, exploration of its connections to things that uh, perhaps students are more interested in, and that I think mathematics should appear in some form or another uh, throughout the curriculum. And uh, as I said, I don't want to particularly take sides in the so-called math wars. Happily, the term isn't used as often as it was. Mm -hmm. But, um, I mean, you mentioned journalism. I mean, 
uh, math and the media and journalism. I think to the uh, standard litany of journalistic questions, who, what, when, where, why, how, and so on, should be added uh, how many, uh, how likely. Hmm. Is the rate going up or down? What's the possible downside? I mean, the, the an- answers to these questions are often known. They don't have to appear in the lead to the story. But somewhere fairly high in the story, they, they should should appear if they're known um, to give the story some uh, some heft, some muscularity, and not just uh, be anecdotal. And uh, for other uh, areas uh, as well, in the stock market, uh, there's lots of standard sorts of stuff in uh, various uh, ways in which mathematics plays a role. But kind of more um, general story ways are that emphasize logic rather than computation. I mean, for example, the efficient market hypothesis that the market immediately takes account of any sort of uh, movement, any sort of news about uh, stocks. Uh, it's true to the extent that most uh, investors believe it to be false. Hmm. Like that's in a sense a mathematical statement, but it's not one that you see in most Stock market books. I mean, if uh, investors believe it to be false, they'll they'll scurry around, try to uh, trade and uh, look at what's happening and uh, buy and sell. And uh, by their efforts, the market will become efficient. And if they believe it to be true, they'll say, oh, that's a waste of time. Hmm. Like the old spoke about the efficient market hypothesis. The guy says there's $100. Two guys are walking down the street. To economists, there's $100 in the gutter there, and the other one says, no, if it really were, it would have been picked up by now. <laughs> but in any case, uh, I think storytelling puzzles uh, are, are ways to um, really induce an appreciation for and an interest in and a desire to learn more mathematics. And it's not just an isometric exercise. Uh, it has connections, which is not to say that uh, there should be no emphasis on computation and so on. But given calculators and all the the software that's available now, there's a little reason to uh, emphasize um, those computational aspects. I mean, most of the um, you know the algorithms and, uh, and procedures that people learn, even as an undergraduate, uh, are now so easily done uh, online with uh, too much understanding that, um, again, uh, uh, a lot of effort should not be devoted to them, but how to use them. I mean, even I hear people in the hall sometimes that are talking about some statistical program, and, uh, you know, I hear them talk about the p-value, and if I'm in the elevator, it's clear they don't know what p-values are. I mean, you might critique them for various reasons, but it's not the probability that null hypothesis is true, which is what so many people, even researchers, think. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, again, any, any way in which you can uh, induce interest, whether uh, puzzles, jokes, applications, uh, is to be uh, applauded. Because in general, people are interested, uh, most people are interested in all kinds of things, and, but uh, often not mathematics. But if you can tie mathematics to something which is more interesting, that's a good thing. And, and the way that I kind of see your work going is you don't just extract some mathematical content and then have it kind of in a contrived situation off to the side. You actually just bring a mathematical mindset and then you keep exploring the actual thing that they're interested in. So if they're interested in journalism, if they're interested in humor, whatever it might be, you actually keep the focus on that humor and the journalism 
in ways that are actually important for those areas, but you have a mathematical mindset and you can just sort of be like, oh, if from a mathematical perspective, I notice this or I make this connection or I make this critique. Um, and so for me, it's more about thinking and approaching things in a mathematical way rather than just trying to pull out a small piece of math content and then using that to sort of drill the content. Right, yeah. The, the, the latter is uh, kind of the analog of uh, you know, the artificial problems about trains going towards each other at 80 miles an hour, how mm -hmm. at 200 miles apart, when will they, da, 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 da. I mean, you know, it's nice to be able to do that, uh, but uh, it's not all that inherently fascinating. <laughs> yeah, and if you have a student that loves trains, that's I don't know if that's really tapping into their true interest. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I know, yeah, I don't think that is. <laughs> My guest is John Allen Paulos from Temple University. You can learn more about his various books at uh, and other works at johnallenpaulos.com. And I want to go uh, again for just a, another moment or so on Enumerate Life. I was just curious, your process for putting together the book, because you kind of critique uh, biography writing itself, you critique memory, but yet you're also sharing your memories and your biography. You fold in nuggets that you remember from things you've read and things you've done. Uh, and I'm just wondering, how did you go through that process? And also, I'm kind of curious, how do you keep track of all your uh, little one-liners and your little anecdotes and quotes that you've read from other people? Do you do that in a little notebook that you have, or do you do it in your mind, or how do you pull that together? Uh, well, uh, the, the general question first, as I write, I mean, memories... Uh, are often inaccurate. I mean, I've talked to you know so many people, friends, relatives, uh, and I know what they what they quote remember is just not the case. I mean, they're either inaccurate uh, by accident or they're fabricated. Uh, they have biased perspectives. So no matter what they look at, they're going to see the same thing. Uh, the laws, assumptions are usually unfounded. The contingencies that uh, their story depends on are unpredictable. And uh, as I also talk in the book a little bit about the, even the very notion of self is suspect. I mean, of course, the idea goes back to Buddha and, uh, and Hume, but nevertheless, I think it's relevant now with the advent of AI. But I, nevertheless, I've always liked biographies. Uh, I like the nutritionist who secretly enjoys candy and donuts. <laughs> I've always <laughs> enjoyed reading autobiographies from Boswell to Mary Carr's Liar Club and so on. So uh, with a lot of trepidation, I decided to write this mathematically flavored quasi-memoir. And the structure of it is I, I generally talk about some aspect of my personal life, uh, some incident or attitude, and then uh, bring in mathematics that's uh, relevant or, or even just a metaphor for the idea in a kind of more abstract form. So there's this back and forth between the personal and the abstract. And I talk about, you know, as you get older, you get jaded. There's a way to illustrate jadedness uh, with the flipping of coins and the, the record setting. There's uh, Kruskal's trick, which is an, uh, an interesting trick in its own right, uh, the way people become locked into uh, various patterns uh, in, in numbers or words. You can use it to, uh, if you're a member from your religion, to construct a kind of religious hoax. Um, even a, a phrase my father used to really like, he, he said that there are two kinds of people in the world, uh, those who are very strange and those you don't know very well. <laughs> <laughs> and I illustrate the latter with um, the idea that if you look at the outer edge of a circle, you know, with that say a circle has a radius an inch, the, the last centimeter or so, 
around the edge constitutes a small part of the circle. But if you go to a sphere, the outer edge uh, becomes a larger part of the volume. If you look at uh, hypercubes of higher and higher dimensions, the part within, again, with the radius one foot, the part that's within one centimeter of the edge soon dominates everything. So in that sense, everybody's close to the edge. Everybody is strange. And uh, so, uh, again, that's the structure of the book. It's personal uh, experience, idea, attitude, and then the mathematics that uh, I think uh, sheds some oblique light on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked that passage about that we as complex human beings have so many dimensions of personality and experiences and traits that once you realize we have that many dimensions, we're actually much more up in the hypercube situation. Um, because we do have lots of dimensions. And so it's very, very likely that on some or one of those dimensions, you are actually in the kind of outlier territory. Right. We're, we're all we're all strange. <laughs> some more than others, of course. But I also talk about hypocrisy. I mean, hypocrisy is, of course, a bad thing. And uh, if anybody who writes it all, uh, yeah, especially on Twitter, is, sooner or later will be accused of it. But I write uh, using various uh, mathematical notions from, from logic that in a sense, uh, uh, hypocrisy is inevitable. It's unavoidable. Hmm. You can't tell when a set of sentences is consistent, even in uh, propositional logic, much less in, in predicate logic. You know, they're all examples, uh, again, of strangeness. Uh, environmentalists who nevertheless do this and libertines who nevertheless are against that. But um, I think it's interesting that... Uh, hypocrisy uh, taken literally uh, you can't really avoid mm-hmm. as you're a supercomputer and even then hmm. yeah i feel like uh there's hypocrisy of kind of your actions and your words not necessarily aligning and then there's also contradiction where you might make a claim and then later make the opposite claim and it's like it's impossible for you to have both of those or both of those be true and i do feel like in my observation of uh political conversations and things that are going on now, it seems like the contradictions are getting closer together in time. Like somebody might say something, for example, a political leader might say something and then contradict it either the next day, the next week, or sometimes even just later in the same paragraph. And I do do feel like our population uh, or not enough of our population has a kind of a alert system or has problems when contradictions arise. I think for you and I, if we saw not just hypocrisy, but we saw a contradiction where we know, like, wait a minute, this means this this can't be on the level or this can't, you know, be consistent uh, with what they're telling us. It seems like a lot of the population doesn't seem to care at all about contradictions, and it doesn't cause them consternation like maybe it should. Uh, I agree. I mean, there are certain uh, obvious ones. Uh, the issue, though, is if it's very complicated, uh, you know, it's hard uh, whether to determine... And, uh, in fact, it's NP-complete uh, would determine whether some complicated combination of simple propositions connected it by and or not, there's a way to assign uh, truth to them so that their complicated combination is true. The problem's decidable, but it's it's called a Boolean satisfiability problem, but it's still NP-complete, which is you know really, really hard. Mm. So, But yeah, I, I agree. I mean, in present-day time, you don't have to go to such elaborate lengths. I mean, this, especially when truth seems to be held in such low regard uh, by Trump and um, many of his supporters uh, uh, who either lie themselves or don't care that he's lying. Hmm. And uh, you can't really point to some, you know, 
special little mathematical fact, oh, there's a mistake about conditional probability or you don't understand about uh, uh, this or that. You know, he says X when it's clear that it's not X. I mean, there's not, there's no way you can critique that except to say you're wrong with the capital W. You know, I mean, societal enumeracy to, uh, is still an underrated driver of bad politics, mm. which is I was getting at with that. I mean, uh, simple logic, conditional probability, uh, this hyped concern with foreign terrorists when there's hardly any, uh, Muslim ban, caravans is a big thing. No, it's not. Uh, guns killed so many people, tax cuts, uh, deficits up 50%. Uh, wars in Iraq and, or, and Afghanistan are 50 to 100 times the annual budgets of the National Science Foundation or the hmm. Food Drug Administration and, and big issues like climate change, infrastructure, education, the way it's funded, gerrymandering. You know, those aren't people don't pay attention to them, even though mathematically using the word loosely, they're uh, much more important. But um, anyway, OK, end of little. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, I. I think that is one thing we can, as a society, get really fixated on certain problems, especially when people are pushing those problems to the forefront. But it's really kind of important to step back and say, okay, wait a minute, statistically or looking at the data, which are actually the most pressing problems, which affect the most people, which are going to make the most difference in the near term, in the medium term, in the long term. And yeah, I think if you do, if you step back and do that evaluation, you'll realize a lot of our attention is going to pretty small um, minor things, but it's hard to call them minor problems because some people they care so much about them. So there's also the kind of personal dynamics of minimizing what somebody feels is a very important problem. Yeah, right. And that's, yeah, that is a complication, of course. But uh, nevertheless, uh, climate change, gerrymandering, infrastructure, mm -hmm. education, and so on, is vastly more important than uh, caravans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I agree with you on that. Um, I do want to finish with a, a more lighthearted question here at the end. So if you were not in mathematics and these mathematics-related uh, activities that you've been doing as your career, is there something else you could imagine doing instead? Good question. Uh, even now, I often ask myself uh, what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> uh, happily, at least in a sense. Uh, I haven't grown up all that much yet. But anyway, maybe I'd be a writer of some sort or... And it might be presumptuous to use the term. I, I'd like to be some kind of gadfly, a la, let's say, Bertrand Russell. Mm. But uh, I, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, people, there's, you know, life's turns are very contingent, and it's it's hard to hard to predict uh, one's future from one's past sometimes. And um, even question is, I don't know. I but I, I would I, some kind of writer. Uh, I did uh, math and humor. Yes, about that early on. I, I did uh, do some stand-up a few times, hmm. and and realized how long three minutes is, <laughs> <laughs> and that my my jokes aren't the type that go over to a, in an audience that's drinking. But um, anyway, uh, something in this vague, nebulous sort of uh, writer gadfly vein is what I would do. Mm -hmm. Well, John, thanks so much for taking the time to speak about us. Uh, and I also just want to say personally that I've enjoyed reading your works. Uh, when I'm when I'm in your book, I'm just having a good time. It's funny. It's insightful. It makes me think about things differently. So I'm also just a fan. I've really enjoyed talking to you about it. Oh, well, thanks so much for the kind words, Sam. I really appreciate them.